Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we delve into the oldest forms of so-called media known to man, storytelling and writing. As I welcome first-time guest and award-winning actor and audiobook narrator, Eduardo Ballerini. And we welcome back best-selling author Jane Healy. Eduardo Ballerini is a two-time winner and five-time nominee of the Best Male Narrator Audio Award from the Audio Publishers Association, the industry's highest prize. In a 2020 profile, the New York Times called Eduardo a master in his field at the forefront of a new kind of celebrity. His spot-on and meticulous narration can be heard on over 400 titles, including classics by Dante, T.S. Eliot, Dostoevsky, Camus, Tolstoy, Kafka, and Jack London, among many more. And his voice also brings to vivid life the work of modern-day bestsellers from Cormac McCarthy, Richard Powers, David Baldacci, Dean Koontz, and Isabel Allende, and many, many more. He's also recorded several spiritual titles by Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama. In 2019, Eduardo was named a Golden Voice by Audiophile Magazine, an honorific bestowed to only 40 narrators in the magazine's 22-year history. And as an actor, he's appeared on stage, television, and film, and had a recurring role on The Sopranos. Jane Healy is the author of The Beantown Girls, a Washington Post and Amazon Charts bestseller, The Secret Stealers, which was an Amazon First Reads editor's pick and Historical Novel Society's editor's choice, and her debut, The Saturday Evening Girls Club. Jane joined me to talk about Good Night from Paris, her newly released novel from Lake Union Publishing. Jane is also the host of Historical Happy Hour, a monthly webinar and podcast featuring interviews with premier historical fiction authors and their latest novels. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow, like, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Eduardo Ballerini. Hello, Eduardo Ballerini. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I got to say, this is a real uh, honor in the sense that um, I feel like you've lived in my head for a period of time, and I didn't even realize you were living in, in, in my head, given the fact that you've narrated over 350 audiobooks, and you haven't just narrated them, you have narrated them with great distinction. I mean, you are an award-winning audiobook narrator, having won, I believe, at least twice what is essentially the audiobook equivalent of the Oscars, uh, the Audi Award, <laughs> right. the, uh, yeah. which is presented by the Audio Publishers Association, two-time winner. Uh, so again, welcome and uh, congratulations on all of that. Well, thank you very much. And your background is really interesting. So uh, bring our bring our listeners up to speed in terms of a bit of the path that you took uh, to arrive at the role of audiobook narrator. 
So my whole life and career has been a kind of a circuitous path to this point. Uh, I started out, I'm the son of two academics. Uh, my father is a, a, a poet and a scholar. My mother is an art historian. And so I grew up in the world of academia thinking that was going to be where I was going to go. Uh, and then I went to Wesleyan University. I graduated thinking I was going to do graduate work, all that good stuff. And then one summer, uh, right after I graduated in Rome, Italy, uh, of all things, I was studying Latin, if you can believe it, <laughs> and it just didn't work out for me. And I ended up joining a theater company, mostly because, I'll be perfectly honest, I was just bored and lonely. I just okay. didn't know what to do. And there happened to be this expat theater company. So a bunch of Americans were over there. I joined them for a little while, came back to New York, started taking classes, and I started acting. One thing led to another. I was on TV shows. I was in movies. It was going pretty well. And then one day, uh, about, I'm going to say it's about 15, 20 years into my career at this point, somebody says, what would you think about narrating an audiobook?" And I said, what's that? You know, I really didn't know much about it. This was back when, you know, audiobooks were still, I guess, on cassettes and CDs. It was sure. kind of, it was right before Audible took off and made it all, you know, digital in our pockets with the iPhone and all that. And I said, sure. So I ended up in this woman's closet uh, recording a book and I kind of liked the experience. And I thought, you know what, this is actually the marriage of the two worlds of mine. It's that literary academic bookish side and it's the actor performing side and it seemed like the perfect blend of the two and it just felt like the right place to be for me and from there it just kind of rolled and took off and i have to say that you know i've been very fortunate in this business but there's something about sort of timing is everything because i came into the audiobook world just as it was taking off and exploding. Mm -hmm. Audible had just been launched. So there was this kind of need for actors to come in and, and narrate a lot more books. Uh, and it just, I mean, now it's this sort of juggernaut. It's this multi-billion dollar industry. Yep. Um, but then it was, it was still sort of small and just getting on its feet. Uh, I always joke, like you could have put everybody working in audiobooks in one room. You know, <laughs> it was like, it was a small industry, but that's certainly no longer the case. Now you need a uh, stadium. Yeah, now you need a stadium. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I, the, uh, the the portability really was a difference maker when people absolutely. were able to take that story, yeah, uh, with them on their walk to the gym as they're doing dishes, whatever, right. moving through their day. Whereas before, even if you were a lover of of audio books, um, most people were listening in their car. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and there's no question that the technology has played a role in the expansion of this business. I also think. Uh, that what happened is you got this expansion of this business and you also had this influx of very talented people. So you, and this is no knock on people who are narrating audiobooks before uh, mm -hmm. Audible came along and digitized mm -hmm. everything. But suddenly you had all these actors coming from Juilliard and Yale and NYU and theater and film and all, and they were coming into this world as well. And they brought with them, I think, a, a whole new level of audiobook performance. Sure. And so, and I think that resonated with listeners. And so suddenly people were like, hey, this is a great product. You know, I always say, like, you can make something as convenient as you want. If it's garbage, people aren't going to want it. Exactly. Right? So, so the product so was good. Coming to uh, the, the world of audiobooks uh, from acting, and you're still an actor, what do you see the ratio as being that was the sort of the differentiator for you? Was it the 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 skill with performance or the skill with 
oratory or the merging of the two? It's a combination of things. There's no question. I do think, and I say this to actors who ask me about audiobooks all the time, that, you know, one thing is, first of all, you have to have a, a love of books. Like, it, this is not the world for you if you don't, uh, because it's very hard work. People don't really understand this. They think, well, you just go into a room and you read a book, right? It's like, well, it's not quite that simple. Right. You're playing all the characters. You got to love the author. You have to fall in line with the author's voice, uh, all that kind of stuff. And another factor is that right around the time that I started getting into audiobooks and was being asked to do them, I also had uh, just started meditating. Hmm. And I think that those two things together were very important because the idea of being still and just focused on one thing in a small space for a long time, which is a big part of working in audiobooks, um, it was, again, it was sort of the timing is everything thing. It, it yeah. all came together. I've talked to some wonderful actors who have tried to do audiobooks and said they were just going bananas, sitting in a small room, reading, you know, tens and twenties and hundreds of pages, you know, for hours on end. They just couldn't do it. Do you think that there's a, there's a relationship with the meditating and the concentration or awareness of breath? Yeah, I do. Actually, um, I think it all feeds into it. I think audiobook performance is it's a fairly specific skill. Uh, and again, I think people often dismiss it because they say, well, you just have to read the words on the page. Right. You know, what could be so hard about that? But the ability to to focus and concentrate on a text right. for a long period of time and to really give yourself over to it. And here's an important distinction. Acting, you're given a role. And your job is largely to, to create something that even the producers and directors don't even know, you know, that's there. They mm -hmm. want to see something brought to it. You want, they want to be surprised, right? With audiobooks, it's a slightly different thing. You're really in service to the book. You're really in service to what has already been written. And so it's not for you to say, you know, it would be great with this character. I've got a great idea for what to do with this character. I know it's not what's written on the page, but I'm going to try it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong approach. So that wasn't it's, an approach you took when you were reading Dante and T.S. Eliot? Figured yeah. you'd do your own spin on that? I said, I got a great idea. All the characters <laughs> should be clowns. Um, no. I, uh, and I think that's a very important distinction for people to understand, you know, um, and I think, you know, you, you said at the top, like uh, that something about like how I, I'd been in your head and in your world and you didn't even know it was me. Right. And, you know, that happens a lot because the narrator essentially needs to disappear. Right. Right. The narrator needs to just fall away into the book and perform the book. And so it's a very different beast. And again, some of these wonderful actors, they, they just that it's not what they do. Right. Yeah. And so. Yeah, so of, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't being facetious when I mentioned Dante and T.S. Eliot, two of the authors that you um, you did the audiobook narration for for their work, along with Jack London and Richard Powers and Cormac McCarthy and Jess Walter and David Baldacci and Dean Koontz. And the list goes on and on. Very different genres, hmm. very, very different genres as a reader. Do you have favorite genres? I Yes. I mean, I really come from the world of, of literature, what we would mm -hmm. call like high literature. Uh, and I know that that can make me sound a bit of a snob, but 
you know, I do like writers who are not only good storytellers, but also working with language and working with form of language. I, I also just like a lot of people, I enjoy a good thriller. You know, sure. I enjoy just a, the way I enjoy a good action movie. You know, not every movie has to be an art house masterpiece for me to watch it. So, yeah. And I asked the question because, you know, when I think of somebody like a Richard Powers mm-hmm. versus, say, a Dean Coons, mm-hmm. their style is very, very different. Mm-hmm. The sort of the expository narrative ratio to dialogue mm-hmm. tends to be very different. So True. when you're doing your tell us a bit a little bit about your prep work right. uh, in because if you're an actor being cast in, you know, as you were in The Sopranos in a reoccurring yeah. role, um, you know, your job was to figure out this character, this character in relation to the rest of the story Mm -hmm. and, you know, hit it out of the park as best you can in doing that. But your job as the audiobook narrator, Mm -hmm. you're taking on the whole thing, right? How do I maintain sort of that ethereal voice, but then also be a believable character within that story? Right. So I have a very specific way that I prep. And before I get into that, I want to say that, uh, what one of the great things is I've gotten to know a lot of these authors. Uh, I end up having these email correspondences with them, and one of whom is Dean Koontz. And without revealing the you know the private nature of our conversations, uh, he and I talk about T. S. Eliot a lot. Interesting. Which yeah, which may surprise some people. Uh, Koontz is actually much more let's say literary mm-hmm. than I think he's given credit for. Um, anyway, back to your original question. Um, so what I do is I get a book. And I, I kind of skim it. I, I want to know the story. I want to know the author's voice. I want to know the main characters. But I also don't want to know it too well. And there's a reason for this. Because I want to, as I'm reading and recording and performing it, I want to leave a certain area to be surprised and thrilled myself as I go along. And I find that that actually makes me alert and it brings a, a whole new level to the performance. Early on in my career, when I was sort of terrified that I was going to blow it with the publisher, I remember I got a book and I so over prepped this thing. I mean, I had like every other sentence highlighted and marked and all the way through that by the time I got into the booth to record it, I was kind of done with it. And I found that there was nothing fresh. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I learned from that uh, to kind of, you have to know the story. You have to know the characters. You don't want to find out 300 pages later that, you know, somebody has a British accent, that kind of thing. Um, But I also, I need to leave some room for a little kind of jazz improvisation. I need to leave a room for that dialogue to happen between the text and me. I need to be a little surprised in places. So that's my approach to it. Do you have a preference as to whether the book is written in the first person or the third person, and very rarely, with the except the one that comes to mind for me in the second person is Bright Lights, Big City. Right. Um, but but do you have a preference between the the voice that's being used? I do first person all the way. Okay. Uh, because I feel like it, uh, it allows me to really be the actor. Uh, yeah. I feel like I get to be the character. I had the great pleasure of doing this huge series by a Norwegian writer named Carlo Vaknauskort called My Struggle. It's 3,600 pages long. Okay, I'm, going to, I'm going to thank you right now for correcting a wrong in my head. I've been mispronouncing his name all these years. You know, it's funny because there, there are nine different pronunciations that I've heard too. Uh, the publisher told me it was Knauskort. So that's what we went with. But anyway, I never would have arrived at that. 
And we can just call him Karlova. That's easier. <laughs> um, anyway, I read Karlova's books and they're all in the first person. And it's this very, you know, Proustian meandering uh, story through this man's life, which often seems to veer off into the mundane. It's like he's just smoking a cigarette and having a cup of coffee and waiting for the bus. But it was first person. And I just, I method acted, sort of fell into this role. Yeah. And it, the books came out over years because they were being translated. And so it was like a five-year project uh, from start to finish that I had these books that I was doing on and off. And that really, that first person, like being that guy. Yeah. And I really felt like I got to bring my acting chops to the fore there. So that's the entirety of the My Struggle series. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and I think I had read you recorded over 135 hours of that sounds of, about right. Yeah. Uh, of narration. So you mm -hmm. mentioned method. Mm -hmm. A method actor will often talk about not being able to shed mm -hmm. the character. Do you ever yeah. have that challenge, particularly with something as immersive as 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 that type of a story? With Karlova, I did. Uh, it's the only time it's ever happened to me. And I think because it was uh, ongoing for years. And I think also uh, there was something about the power of his writing. And I, I just, I shared an affinity with him that there was something about his life and my life, while very different, there were so many parallels between them that I just, I felt like this guy. And I started, I might be embarrassing, but I started dreaming about him. I started sort of wow. wondering, like, if he was in the house, you know, he's sort of he really got into my headspace. And I I became a, a, a bit sort of Karlova obsessed for a while uh, and he just kind of took over. But it was wonderful. It really was because it was this immersive process into an art form, which it was, you know, fairly early in my audiobook career when that happened, that first one. And it really changed how I felt about recording. What type of production schedules are you dealing with? So, you know, today's Monday. And do you know uh, how much recording you're doing for this week and next week? Is yeah. it on the same work or are you are you, you know, going between different works? I like to do one book at a time. I don't mm -hmm. like to jump between the two because I find that confusing. Um, and I like to do them as quickly as possible because I I, I find that uh, it, it helps me just stay in the story and stay with the characters. Okay. Uh, at the same time, there are physical limitations to how much you can do on a given day. Uh, I tend to hit the wall. I, I, I usually have around a six hour day and that includes breaks. Um, so I find that my brain and throat and mouth and eyes can't really do much beyond that. So you're talking about yeah, four and a half to five hours of actual recording on a day, which is, a, you know, it's a fair amount. Sure. Most um, definitely. And, yeah. And so at that kind of pace, you know, a, a novel of, let's say, 300, 350 pages, um, I, I'll get that done in a week. OK. Um, and so, you know, I've prepped it before. Um, and so, you know, you can roughly say it's you, about a week's time to do a book. And are you doing your segmented read through of that of that 300 page novel or so and then sending it to a sound engineer or is there a sound engineer in the room or right outside of your booth while you're recording? That's a great question. It, it differs from project to project. Mm -hmm. uh, some projects uh, you work with a director. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, in this day and age, they're on Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't go into studios very much anymore. Uh, post pandemic, uh, that all changed. Is that your uh, preference? 
well, in terms of uh, convenience, certainly, mm-hmm. sure. uh, it certainly, you know, cutting down on the commute is wonderful. I do miss, you know, human beings, uh, people. <laughs> that That's nice. Uh, I was fortunate last year to go back and do a TV series, um, which we can talk about later. At that I was like, oh my God, people, <laughs> I'm not just in my basement recording with some, you know, disembodied voice on a zoom call. Yeah. Um, and, no, and so we will work together and at the end of the day, we'll send the files off to the publisher and then they'll come back with any uh, pickups and corrections, which I'll send back. And then, you know, I hand it off at that point. I don't, I don't have anything to do with it then. Then sometimes you're, um, you know, what they call self-directed, uh, mm-hmm. you're doing a book by yourself, uh, which has again certain advantages meaning you just do it when you want uh and certain disadvantages meaning you don't have that second set of ears saying you know i think we can do a better job with this paragraph or you know i think we missed something there right Um, right. and so but that's generally how it works at the start of our conversation you you mentioned both of your parents having been academics uh, and i i had read that your father is an italian poet of of Mm -hmm. some renown Mm -hmm. um so would it be a stretch to say that you grew up in a household that put a premium on language? That would not be a stretch at all. Yeah. Um, my childhood was dominated by being surrounded by academics who were talking about language. Uh, I was taken to a lot of readings and symposiums when I was a child. Um, I can't say that I enjoyed all of it because I was a small child, but yeah. you know, it certainly got in there. Right. Uh, I have many, many memories of being at a, you know, at a, the dinner table with all these professors and poets and writers and they were talking about language and they were just talking about sounds and and talking about greek and latin and you know all this it was just that's kind of the world i grew up in Um, yeah you must have been soaking so much of that in and i would imagine that you know particularly from the from the perspective of poets mm -hmm. you know on a level you come to recognize that there are so many ways to address a word or a mm-hmm. phrase yeah. and, and, you know, you can, you can eke out so many varieties of meaning from a particular, from a one word or, or a short series of words. And yeah. that certainly comes through in your narration. Well, thank you. I also think that, you know, th- there, there are a hundred ways that you can read any given sentence. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm sure some people will will stop and sort of agonize over each sentence. Uh, I tend to prefer to trust my instincts and trust the author's flow and to just go as much as I can, um, unless there's an egregious error where I've really misunderstood something or, or mm-hmm. mis, you know, said something to just go uh, and kind of trust that the decades of listening to poetry and language and that literary flow is sort of in me and that I'm having this relationship with the text and I'm getting what I need from it and it's getting what it needs from me. Um, And so I I, I rely on that. What's the nature, uh, if any, um, that, that you have with the actual authors? You, you did a, mention the question. relationship that, yeah. you know, took root with Dean Koontz. Yeah. Um, but I'm but I'm curious, particularly now that you've you know, you've established yourself of such renown within the field. Mm. Do you have situations where authors come and say to you, I heard you do this book, bring mm. that magic to my book? <laughs> uh, yes, I often get uh, authors requesting me to do their books uh, through the publisher. Um, but then one of the nice things that's that's happened is I've developed friendships with all kinds of writers over the years. 
um, you know, some of whom I, I just email with and some of whom I've met in person and we have, you know, we'll have lunch or drinks or something. Um, and it's really opened up a whole world, which I, you know, had never known about. Um, and it's been great, especially if I come and do an author's second book or third book, because then I have that established relationship and I can talk to them about their new work uh, and they can give me uh, some background and information which might be helpful. Um, and I think that's actually when it's working at its best is when mm -hmm. the, the author and the narrator are, are, are have some sort of connection. And how um, does that how, how does the sort of the author's insight? into sort of their, you know, their storytelling objective. How does that play into how you approach something either tonally or in your phrasing or pacing? Yeah. Like a lot of it is in instinctual. Uh, it really is. Um, and I have talked to authors and we've actually not talked about their book. Uh, and But just in talking to them and hearing their voice mm -hmm. helps me understand how they wrote what they wrote. Uh, one example is uh, Andre Asiman. Uh, who's best known for Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I've <laughs> recorded several of his of his books, not that one. Um, and he and I have become friends and we meet for coffee and uh, uh, it, it's wonderful. We email him. And so I, I talked to him a few times and I did a book out of Egypt for him, which is this sort of memoirish book. And knowing Andre and knowing his personality and his voice just I, I could just sort of feel him in the room with me while I was doing it. And I think it it changed my approach for the better. Mm -hmm. uh, so anytime I can do that with an author, the better. Do you have scenarios in, in real life where, you know, you're talking to somebody at a dinner party or you're in a social <laughs> setting and and someone's just like, how do I know your voice? <laughs> yeah, I, I have actually. Uh, it's a funny business because you're somewhat anonymous. Yeah, uh, nobody sees your face uh, when you're doing this, uh, and often they don't even know who the narrator is because it's not particularly advertised. Right? It's it's mostly about the book. Sure. Uh, and so, yes, I have had occasion where people have. I've been standing in line a couple of times talking and somebody turned around and said, wait a minute, you sound so familiar, which was really funny. Uh, a really crazy one was that. So I didn't know that people did this, but I guess some people listen and read at the same time. Sure. Uh, yeah. This this was new to me, yep. but I was on a plane down to North Carolina and a woman was reading a Baldacci book and she had earbuds in and I'd read, I had narrated the book and I didn't say anything the entire flight. I don't like to bother people on planes, but right at the end, as we were disembarking, I said, oh, yeah, I couldn't help but notice that you were reading the David Baldacci book. I happened to have narrated it. And she said, oh, my God, I've been listening to you the entire flight. <laughs> That's like, wild. What? That's like, great. I know. Um, yeah, but, you know, the rise of audio, as we said earlier, like, I, I think people estimate it's like 15 to 20 percent of book now, book sales now yeah. is in audio, which means that, you know, close to one in five people is listening to a book. Yeah. And which those, that's the, a big shift. Exactly. And those those trends are continuing in the direction. Right. That's of, a big shift, audiobook. which I think gives a great responsibility to the narrator. Oh, no uh, doubt. You know, 20 percent of a, a writer's audience is going to be channeled through a certain person's voice. You know, How do you decide whether or not uh, you want to employ an accent? That is a fantastic question. Um, and I'm going to answer it this way, that I feel like. Uh, 
I feel like accents in recent years have been uh, tamped down a bit. Mm -hmm. I think there's, and this is a good thing, there's more cultural sensitivity. Sure. Uh, And so people, you know, even I, like years ago, if a character came through, you know, which was not in my, let's say, cultural comfort zone, uh, I would just kind of go for it. As we all did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I think uh, people are like, you know what, let's just pull back on that. I also think that casting has gotten much better uh, in the industry. uh, And so people are not being given books that would be outside of their their zone. Um, I also think. uh, But to your question, which is interesting, I think certain books call for accents and certain books uh, don't necessarily. Sure. And I would say that the the bigger sort of pulpier bestsellers kind of call for it uh, because they're more in that action movie mold. And yep. so an audience, a listening audience kind of expects that if the, you know, the, the Russian thug comes along, they, they want that Russian accent, something that's more literary, um, something set in whatever world war two Germany, let's say, and there's some characters coming through there, but it's really, uh, uh, you know, high literature. It, you can not necessarily have to do these heavy-handed German accents, and the, the listeners will be will be fine with that. But I do think it has shifted in recent years, and I say again that that's uh, been a positive trend. What measures do you take to um, uh, sufficiently care for your vocal instrument? <laughs> uh, it's funny. At the end of a long week, my throat will be fried. Yeah. Um, I. Try not to uh, try not to yell too much. Try not to sing too loud. You know that okay. kind of stuff. I don't have any great magical. Uh, you know, I, some people are like oh, they drink you know four cups of this kind of tea every day, and they okay. do vocal warm ups and all of that kind of stuff. I don't. Uh, one thing I have learned is that there's a certain time of the day where I, I need. I can't start before a certain time of the day uh, because my voice is just not warmed up yet. Uh, and I need to stop at a certain time of the day because my voice just kind of fries. And so, well, you also, you know, if you think about it, you're recording from day to day, but you need to sound consistent, right? Yeah. And exactly. so your your morning voice has to kind of match your evening voice so that by the time you get back to your morning voice, it's the same voice. Um, so where's know, that where's that sweet spot somewhere around 10 a.m. to 3 p.m.? Yeah, that's about it. And then I <laughs> then then I'm done and I take care of my kids all afternoon. So <laughs> yeah. that 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 really is a great balance. Yeah. Um and and I we're not posting any video of this conversation, but I am seeing you sitting yeah. in your studio. Yeah. Um how did that studio come together? Was it a DIY sort of a thing? It's a DIY. So the house I moved into 6 years ago has well, had a wine cellar in the basement. Uh, and this is what this room is where I'm sitting now. And it's it's a fairly narrow but kind of longish room. Uh, and it was all brick with a kind of rounded ceiling. And so I had a contractor come in and frame it out. Uh, and then I just put in some, you know, sound uh, uh, foam insulation and some felt and put in a big glass door, which uh, behind me. Uh, and but it's it's perfect. Perfect because the walls are about two feet thick all around. I mean, I can have guys, you know, lawnmowers going by and I just, I don't hear them. 
That's so important. Um, it's, yeah, it's the only downside is that it's in the basement. Uh, okay. And so, you know, it's not a whole lot of daylight that comes in here. Sure. So, yeah. It makes those winters a bit longer. Yeah. It's this kind of molish existence. <laughs> when I take breaks, I always go outside and sort of stare at the sun like I'm worshiping it. You know, when you um, are reading for pleasure, whether mm. it's poetry or prose, do you ever find yourself reading aloud? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. Um, I hadn't really. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, but I do. Um, I also, at this point, as you can imagine, it, I find it hard to just read uh, purely just for the experience of reading. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way that once I started acting in film and television, I could never just watch a film or TV show the same way again, because once you kind of see the guts of it, you sure. know, um, and so I also, on one of the downsides of this work is I don't have a lot of time to just read for pleasure. Right. Because quite frankly, at the end of a six hour recording day and then dealing with my, you know, kids in the afternoon and all of that stuff. One of the last things I want to do is pick up a book. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I'm kind of tired at that point, which is why I'm, um, I'm going to be taking a bit of a break from audiobook recording uh, uh, starting next month, not too long, a little little hiatus. Sure. Um, just because I feel like I, I've lost that ability to just read, mm -hmm. you know, and I want to get that back. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, your your work as an actor that mm -hmm. not an audiobook narrator. Um, and and I know that, as I said, I, I mentioned the uh, recurring character of Corky Caparole. Was I pronouncing his name correctly? <laughs> Caparale, I think it Caparale, was. Caparale, okay. Yeah. On The Sopranos. Yeah. And uh, that experience, I'm sure, has has lots of stories attached to it. Yeah. Um what what's the latest in the uh, in the most exciting in terms of an actor with you going on? So last year I uh, was cast in an upcoming Hulu series called Retreat. Um, there is no release date set uh, yet, but we filmed it. Uh, it's in post production, uh, and it stars uh, Emma Corrin, uh, who rose shot to fame playing Princess Diana in The Crown. Yep. Uh, and Clive Owen, an actor you may be familiar with, of course, yeah. Uh, and then uh, some others, Joan Chen, some other people, uh, Britt Marling and uh, Zalbak Manglish from. Uh, the OA, they created the OA, that mm -hmm. series. This mm -hmm. is their latest series. Okay. So I uh, was uh, offered a role in that. Uh, it's a, a limited series. It's seven episodes. Uh, again, I don't know when it'll be out, but... Was this adapted I, from an existing piece of work or... No, or this was an original thing oh. that they wrote, Britain's All. Um, and it was, it was my first time back on set in about seven years. Wow. I had done a series uh, called Quarry uh, for HBO. Sure, yeah, I know Quarry. Yeah, which was unfortunately didn't get past season one. Uh, and then right around that time, uh, our, our daughter uh, was born and she was very little and our son was only three and the audiobook world was taking off. And so it was kind of this perfect time to have this nine to five job. Sure. Um, and which was all in New York City. Uh, and so I, I really put all my eggs in that basket. Um, and then I, I wasn't sure if I was ever going to act on screen again, to be honest. Uh, and then this opportunity came along. And as I said, it was like, oh, my God, people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> be on a set, you know. Um, and it took me a few days to kind of get back in the swing of it. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm certainly open to doing more. Uh, I'd like to have that balance 
uh, between on on set on screen uh, and in the booth. I think that's that would be a healthy way to to have this career. Did you find that you had to recalibrate at all your like line readings so that they felt different in your head or through your through your through your voice than they would in the recording studio? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, without getting too much into the the characters and the plots, uh, which I don't want to you know talk about, uh, I have found that even in aud- auditioning, just as a general principle, mm-hmm. the work I've done as an actor uh, behind the mic has really changed how I uh, act on screen. Um, and I, I do place a greater importance, and this is probably obvious, to the delivery of the words purely as delivery of words. Sure. Um, and which I think previous to doing all this recording work, I probably started with, you know, the physicality, the face, the look, all of that. And now I think the words and the voice have sort of taken equal footing in my mind. And so when I'm reading something, as I say, even if it's just an audition, I'm I'm paying a lot more attention to the delivery of the words than I probably did before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it has only enriched me as an actor. As I mentioned a couple of times just that exhaustive list of the number of titles that you have done and that and you know super impressive array of, of uh, authors you also narrated the bible <laughs> i did uh it was and that was quite an experience uh it's uh, the hebrew bible which is the old testament mm-hmm. there was a new translation uh, which came out and it is a gorgeous a very poetic uh, very beautiful, very accessible, I would say, uh, translation of the Bible that also took a long time. Uh, and I, one of the things that happened, which was crazy is that, so we recorded everything and we're talking about, you know, numbers and everything. And so it was all that begat, begat, begat kind of thing with a thousand names. We recorded it all. Uh, and, which was fascinating for me, difficult, uh, no question. It was like a, a pronunciation list was like 50 pages for all these names. But I, I did wonder at one point, I was like, who is ever going to listen to, you know, Leviticus, like, which is just a whole lot of like six cubits by four cubits, you know, kind of measurements. That's what I was doing at the, the gym temple. earlier today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what has been uh, really gratifying is that, uh, over the years since I've done that, I've received a number of emails from people and uh, clergymen and, and rabbis and all kinds of, you know, saying what a wonderful job I, I did with this, which, you know, it's just very gratifying. How did um, you arrive at the voice for, you know, the, the Lord for yeah. the Lord? Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you keep Morgan well, Freeman and James Earl Jones out of yeah. your head? Well, I don't have that kind of voice naturally, and I certainly wasn't going to attempt to do that. Uh, the only thing I thought really was the the Lord would speak more slowly. That was really my choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the only distinguishing characteristic. And I certainly was not going to do character voices for Cain and Abel and, you know, like all that stuff. I, the, the last thing I wanted to do was make it cartoonish. Sure, exactly. And so... As opposed to, you know, an audio book where you where you are sort of playing characters, uh, I, you know, respectfully said, let's not do that with this text. And the only distinction I really wanted to come up with was that the, the, the Lord would speak more slowly. And that was that was about it, because 
He was the Lord. Is there a book that you have not narrated, uh, regardless of when it was published, that just is a particular favorite of yours that you would love to lend lend your voice to? Moby Dick. I would love to do Moby Dick. There are several versions of Moby Dick out there. Uh, It's an extraordinary book. Uh, It also has a section where it gets into the minutiae of, uh, you know, the the whale's teeth and all of that, which is, you know, but... I remember reading it in college and I I sort of tore through it in like three days uh, and it stuck with me. And it's an interesting thing with the classics now, especially the classics that are in the public domain. Uh, There are so many versions of them now, Mm -hmm. um, as you can imagine, and especially ones like Moby Dick that don't need a translation, which is in the public domain. So it's unlikely that anybody is going to come to me anytime soon and say, let's do Moby Dick, because Mm -hmm. there are other versions out there. It just, look, this is, you know, basic market driven business, right? They're like, it's, it's not worth it. Um, but I would love to do it. And it's the kind of, I could do it by myself if I wanted to, again, it's in the public domain. I don't need Melville's rights. So, um, I don't know that I have the time right now, but perhaps someday. Have you been approached uh, by movie studios or movie producers to do voices for animated works? Uh, No, I have not. I have done some animation in my Mm -hmm. life. Uh, An interesting thing about the voice world is that these these areas are somewhat distinct. Right. And so you have people that work in audiobooks who don't necessarily work in commercial VO. You have people in commercial VO who don't necessarily work in animation, uh, who don't necessarily work in documentary narration or, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, I have done a little bit of everything over the course of my career. But obviously, the bulk of my work has been an audiobook uh, narration. Um, I'm certainly open to it, mm-hmm. uh, but no, it is not something that has really come along. Is there concern that you know of within the audiobook narration field around AI and, you know, essentially uh, robot narration? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's no question. Uh, AI is here, uh, it's not going anywhere. At the moment, it is being used uh, for, let's call them the sort of lower rung titles, like mm-hmm. independent authors uh, who can't afford uh, a, a narration, uh, you know, the, a narrator fee and all the production that comes along with it. I know that there are companies who offer this uh, and you can go pay them. What I don't know the prices, but, you know, X hundred dollars or thousand dollars, whatever it is, and have your book turned into an audio book. Um, and it is, of course, a concern uh, because the way technology works is it only gets better. Uh, right. And so any flaws that exist in it now, and they certainly are noticeable, the reads are very flat. You know, mm-hmm. they can't they can't really do the the five characters in the room and play. The, you know, they can't do that sure. yet. Yeah. You know, but we know that technology gets better. Absolutely. Uh, and so the people who sort of say, oh, it's not very good right now, therefore nothing to see here. I think that's a kind of misguided uh, way to look at this. I think AI is going to chew more and more uh, of the pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it would it's silly to think it's not going to. Um, and it's clear that the publishers are interested in this. Uh, and that is the nature of capitalism. Most definitely. So if re- if listeners are uh, interested in uh, getting a, a fuller sense of uh, the breadth of the titles that you've worked on and, and more about you, where should we point them to? Well, you can start with my uh, website, which is eduardoballerini.com. And then uh, 
I'm a big fan of uh, Libro FM, if uh, if you're familiar with it, which is uh, essentially an independent audiobook uh, marketplace, uh, which I like it because when you buy through them, you uh, support independent bookstores. Uh, the way it works is you can dedicate where your portion uh, that they give away of, of a sale goes to. Uh, and if it channels through a narrator's page, I have a, a bookstore that's set up to receive a portion of all sales. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. Of course, there is Audible, which is the big, you know, juggernaut in all of this. <laughs> and they have all the titles. Uh, and Audible, to its, you know, to its credit, look, it is built you know, not single-handedly, of course, but has been a huge driving force in doing this. They also, uh, to their credit, have a lot of originals, which you will not find on other platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, you know, uh, for those uh, looking to to save some money, you can go through libraries. Just the same way you can get an ebook and you get it for a period, you can get an audiobook, uh, and it is loaned to you through uh, libraries. Um, and I think I'm a big fan of libraries. I've grown up in them, so I want to support them as well. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great conversation. Eduardo Ballerini, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for your words and your work. And uh, when I say I look forward to hearing you, I mean it. Thank you very much. This has been great. All right. Be well. And now on to my conversation with best-selling author Jane Healy, whose latest novel is Good Night from Paris. Hello, Jane Healy. Welcome back to Making Media Now. It's great to see you. So good to see you. Thanks for having me again. You are very welcome. And congratulations on the publication of Good Night from Paris. And before we start getting into the story and and hearing about your inspiration and your method, etc., I want to read a little something that actually comes from the very end of your book that just struck me as being so well-written and really inspirational. And this is in the acknowledgments. You say, the fact that I am writing acknowledgments for my fourth novel feels very surreal to me. I wish I could go back in time and tell my unpublished self to keep going, despite the rejections and the detours, because someday her literary dreams are going to come true in ways she can't begin to imagine. I thought that that was just such a such a wonderful acknowledgement of sort of the, you know, kind of the felicity of the universe. And and so inspirational to everybody who's ever had a dream uh, to tell stories and be published. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, and I talk to young writers and writers who are trying to get published all the time. And I I guess I, I just always try to say, like, publishing is persistence above all else. And it, you know, every author I know, I don't know. I don't know. Really, even the ones that you think of, are like, kind of burst out of the gate, like debut millions of dollars, whatever. Everyone has a story like that. Everyone has stories of rejections and, and dark days and almost giving up. Um, and it's when you stop knocking on the doors and, and, and walk away, that that's when you lose the game. You know, it's, it's, it's really just about keeping, keep going when everyone else has stopped, you know? Absolutely. It's uh, very inspirational. I think that that certainly that that's a series of sentences that, you know, every uh, wannabe published writer uh, should be visiting on a regular basis just just for inspiration. But tell me now that your published self uh, is ushering book number four out into the world. When you imagined. Being an author of four published books. 
what did you not imagine that comes as part of a job that, you know, perhaps your more idealized notions of it uh, did not reveal? Oh, so um, that's a great question. First of all, when I was not published, I never dared to imagine book four. You know, I just was because you just very you're sitting there and you're like very like, you know, when you're not published yet, you you just dream of that, like getting that book deal. And you you don't even know if you can get that right. So to think beyond that as a career, like I've always wanted this, but I never, th- you know, I, I never dared to dream it when I was still unpublished. I will tell you with book four, I think the thing and um, when I remember published authors talking about this and I'd be like, oh, well, that, that would be like a great problem to have. But I think the the hardest part is that, you know, writing and drafting a, a novel as a creative process. It's a very um, solitary process until you hand it off to your editors and marketing a book, publishing is business, you know, writing is creative and a craft publishing is a business. And so right now with the launch of this book um, and it's, we're kind of back, kind of back to normal after COVID my third book, I couldn't do a lot of like in-person outreach. So um so right now it's all about kind of, I call it Jane Healy Inc. And I'm pushing the book and getting out and seeing readers and talking to people and doing my dog and pony show with my presentation and all of that stuff. And that's a whole different skill set. And it, you know, it can take away from, you know, my agents like, well, what's the next thing? When is it coming? And I'm like, I'm getting to it. But, you know, I get very distracted by um by all of the marketing and um, re- outreach stuff that I'm doing right now. Again, good, great problem to have, but um, finding that balance is hard. Yeah. And there, I, w- I would imagine the two endeavors we require two very different types of thinking and two different modes of communication. Do you have, is it a challenge for you to toggle back and forth? Like, can you constructively be thinking and plotting or researching your next novel as you're revisiting the process um, around writing and and uh, bringing into the world the current novel? Um, no. <laughs> I don't really have time. So, I mean, I really was just thinking, I'm like, I've got to chunk out some time, uh, particularly with like a first draft you know, kernel of an idea, research needed. Like I need to just like carve out time where I can go away somewhere, not in my house with my dogs and my cats and everything else and just work on that because it requires an amount of focus that is really hard anywhere, but especially like with a new book out and life and family and all that stuff. So yeah, indeed, indeed. So the new book is Good Night from Paris. So as the title would imply, it's Paris, it's 1939. And we meet 36 year old American actress, Drew Layton. Who is Drew Layton? How did you discover her? And what was it about her story that felt so compelling and necessary for you to write about? So I did not intend to write another World War II novel, to be honest, because if any, anyone who reads historic fiction knows there's a lot of World War II out there. That's a very crowded genre, uh, subgenre. And um, so, but when I was researching my last novel, The Secret Stealers, which was World War II, um, I was I had multiple sources where I came across this particular story. And it was about how in September of 42, after Pearl Harbor, the Germans rounded up several hundred American women who are live American expatriates, women who are living in and around Paris in villages in Paris. Um, they put them on buses and they put and they imprisoned them in a zoo outside Paris, actually in the monkey house in the zoo. And 
and their friends and family had to pay five francs to um, get into the zoo and shout over the fence to them. And, you know, and the women were asking for socks and underwear and, you know, it, and um, and it had this this story was so amazing because it had these elements of comedy and tragedy. And I could not believe I'd never heard of it before. And yeah. one of the women in the zoo was this American actress, Drew Layton Tartier. And so um, I want I, I put that little story aside because I came up across it a couple times. And then when I was thinking about it and I was like, well, who would I write? Who, how would I include that story in a novel? Who would be the main character? And I kept going back to Drew. And I, the more I looked into her story during the war, the more I was like, OK, I wasn't going to do World War II, but I can't let it go because she was really extraordinary. She was a 1930s Hollywood actress, um, left everything behind. She was a star on the rise in Hollywood, left it all behind for love and married Jacques Tartier, a Frenchman. And, you know, they, they moved to Paris in 1938, whirlwind romance, and he goes off to war and she doesn't have a job. It's hard to be, find a job as an American actress in France. And she ends up becoming essentially the first voice of America broadcasting every night to an American audience about what was happening on the continent of Europe. And mm -hmm. she became so good at her job that um, the Germans eventually started broadcasting on Berlin radio that they were going to execute her when France was occupied. And so here was this like posh American actress had lived a pretty, pretty comfortable life. And then her life takes an incredible turn. And it and she was so compelling because she was so brave in her choices um, during the war and in what she did. So I just I felt like I had to try to tell her story. Absolutely. And, you know, the the plot points um, of this true story, you know, true skeleton of the story, I should say, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, um, yeah. just are so uh, sort of iconic that they they feel like they lend themselves to like, you know, a uh, certainly a fictional uh, representation. Just the notion of, you know, somebody giving it all up for love, somebody yeah. giving it all up for love in Paris. Somebody giving yes. it all up, uh, you know, for love in Paris on the cusp of war. You know, I know. How, yeah, how you... many of these um, events and right. devices could one could one put in? And yet these all actually happened. Yes. So the rounding up of these women and and holding them as prisoners in, in this zoo. Where was that? How did that register sort of on the international scale at the time? Did the was the U.S. government aware of this? Were these women considered POWs under what status were they uh, were they rounded up? They were rounded up under the false pretense that the Americans were um, rounding up German women in America and arresting them and imprisoning them. So they were they were POWs and so like so they were quid, quid pro quo kind of thing. Exactly. Complete lie. But um, but that's the pretense they were arrested under. And then so they were put in the zoo for a few days. And then the same group of women um, were taken to uh, Vittel, which was an internment camp in the mountains um, of France. And it was it was a spa resort town. It was multiple hotels all in the same area surrounded by, by barbed wire. Mm -hmm. And that's where they were imprisoned with several hundred British women. Um, and now at the time, that camp was monitored by the Red Cross. So it was it was a prison camp. They were POWs, but it was not the horrific conditions of some of the other camps you read about in World War II until later. Later, they housed Jewish families there. But at, at the time that Drew was there, it was 
several hundred um, British women, several hundred American women. They were treated decently. I mean, relatively speaking, they were still prisoners. Um, they had food. They had medical you know, support and all of that. When Drew goes to work to for essentially, as you say, the Voice of America, the the radio outfit, what is her primary objective? Well, at first, you know, they it was monitored and kind of governed. The radio station it was called Paris Mondial, and it was monitored by the French government. And they were very careful about what they were saying. Um, they didn't want to piss off the Germans, excuse my language. And um, and so at first she was she played it really safe. Um, lots of kind of cultural programming, a day in the life, um, interviewing actresses and entertainers. Um, but then um, she started also interviewing people like Dorothy Thompson, who was an international journalist who was really extraordinary, interviewed Hitler in the 30s. American international journalist totally saw what was coming and yeah. so um, started really trying to influence American ideas because at the time, if you, you know, in history, in the early, late 1930s, America wanted no involvement with another world war. They were weary. They were very isolationist politically. There was people like Charles Lindbergh, who was on the rise politically, who was um, very much an isolationist, pretty anti-Semitic, actually. Um, yep. So so that, that she was trying to change American minds. And so she started becoming more outspoken and reporting what was going on in the country. And she actually got a lot of great responses, started getting some letters when, when you could still mail, um, getting American letters from Americans saying, thank you. You know, we didn't know. Um, and then of course, um, the Germans took notice and, and, you know, at least five or six times said that she was on their list for execution when they occupied the country. And we, it, I can't recall, was she, was she broadcasting as Drew Layton or Drew, is it Tartier? Cartier. And that's an excellent question um, because she was broadcasting as Drew Layton. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that saved her when when Paris was initially occupied was she started using Tartier and dropped Layton, yep. hoping that the Germans never made the connection between Drew Layton on the radio and Drew Tartier married to a Frenchman. So right. that was one of her kind of hiding in plain sight strategies. But I would imagine broadcasting and, and trying to rouse American, you know, interest in and support for what was happening uh, in Europe at the time. Broadcasting as Drew Layton probably was the more powerful effect, given her uh, prior role in Hollywood. And just how how um, well known as a as an actress was she when she did make the decision to leave Hollywood and, and venture to uh, London and then Paris? I feel like that's an excellent question. I feel like she was kind of the star just on the cusp of of greater stardom. You know, mm -hmm. she was she was called the next Greta Garbo. She was really kind of making a name for herself in the Charlie Chan movies as the blonde sidekick, you know. Um, and so she did like four of those in a row. And I think that's what was kind of had kind of elevated her. Yep. And then um, I'm, you know, she doesn't really in my research and her writing, she doesn't say why she left Hollywood behind, I think. But I think, you know, I, I Hollywood is hard on women now. So I think maybe she was just disillusioned with it all and, and, and fell head over heels in love and just, and left it all, all behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to your previous three novels, which were also in the historical fiction genre, um, 
Was the balance any different with this book in terms of the sort of the uh, the uh, the weight of the historical scaffolding that you're going to weave a fictional story uh, through through and, and, and around was did it feel like uh, it was any different from your perspective, how to meld the fictional with the nonfictional? Yeah, I, that's such an excellent question. And that was that's absolutely true. It was very much, much harder because this is biographical fiction. My other books, the protagonist was completely made up. Mm -hmm. And this one, the protagonist is a real person in history. And, you know, she's passed away, which gives you, you get more leeway when, when a a historical figure has passed away. But, but still, I wanted to really stick to kind of the broad facts of her life as much as I could. Not even the broad facts. I wanted to stick to the facts of her life as much as I could while still telling a story. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, a novel is, it's fictional. It has to have a story arc, beginning, middle, end. It has to be entertaining, hopefully, um, all of those things. So so that was really challenging. This was the hardest book project by far because of that, partly because of that, I think. Now, I, I read that you had also found, which is a now out of print uh, autobiography that she had written. Um, what role did that play in in both helping you and almost sort of like painting you into a corner as to what can right, I do right. with this woman? <laughs> right. So that was um, I, I found it on eBay. I paid like 100 euros for uh, out of print copy. It's like falling apart. Um from a guy in the UK, I found it. And, um, and, but that actually, it was, it's very short. It's like maybe 160 pages, I want to say. So it really kind of just helped me figure out kind of the narrative arc and the outline. And mm-hmm. then I was able to kind of fictionally fill in stuff. I mean, there's some wonderful pieces in there that, and I did use some of the dialogue from the novel, I mean, from the autobiography, obviously citing my sources and getting sign off to be able to do that. Um, but, but yeah, that it, it's kind of, she, she would bring up a certain incident and, um, and mention it in a couple sentences. And then that would become the basis for, you know, a few page scene in the, mm-hmm. in the book, you know, it, it was, it kind of, it was a jumping off point in several instances. And it also helped me kind of figure out timeline and where I had wiggle room and where I didn't feel I did, you know, I, I, I and, and, um, and it's, you know, I started writing my historical research notes for the for this novel as I was writing the book, because I I really want people to understand, like, where I took liberties and where I didn't feel I could, you know, right, and, right. And, and and my whole uh, rationale behind that. So my historical notes at the end of the book are like way longer than my other ones because of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So in reading her um, autobiography, did that give you like a toehold in terms of uh, finding her voice, finding kind of her worldview, uh, s- some some element of her spirit? Because, I mean, her spirit is just I, I don't want to give away any any spoilers, but I think the word insurmountable didn't exist in her vocabulary. Yeah. Oh, she was a force. Right. She was really a force. And um, that the autobiography absolutely did. And also um, I was able to find her letter. Some of her letters home before. Again, while you could still send letters home are archived at the um, U.S. Holocaust Museum in D.C., um, the Tartier family letters. So that was that those were amazing to also get a sense of who she was and her her strong personality 
her fierceness. Yeah, that that really helped. Both of those sources really helped. Because to be honest, like she was a public figure, but she wasn't like big enough that I could find that much on her specifically, except mm-hmm. for, um, you know, newspaper articles, obviously, and, you know, other different sources. But the autobiography and the letters, it, I felt like, OK, I got a, I could get a sense of, of who she was and I felt comfortable trying to tell it in the first person for that reason. Yeah. And you you describe her quite accurately as a force. And and she was a force among forces because, yeah. in a, you know, in addition to in addition to Drew, you know, you uh, you pepper the, the the story with other real life individuals, uh, Sylvia Beach, Dorothy Thompson, who you had mentioned before, uh, Josephine Baker. How did you go about figuring out, you know, where what the when the right insertion of actual historical figures and their relationship to her mission uh, would be appropriate in this fictional telling. Yeah. So it was really interesting. The expatriate community during the war, the American expatriate community was pretty small. And so all of those people that you mentioned, Sylvia Beach, Josephine Baker, Dorothy Thompson, they all had relationships with Drew Layton in real life. And they all were on her radio show, or in the case of Sylvia Beach, who was the owner of Shakespeare and Company, they were uh, in prison together, first in the zoo and then in the in the camp. Um, Josephine Baker was on the sh- on her radio program multiple times. Dorothy Thompson as well. Um, the, the, the one challenging thing I'll, I will say is that beginning, kind of the first part of the book where she's on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like there really I could not find any of the old recordings. I could not find the transcripts. And then I finally found a source that said they were destroyed at some point. Um, Now, they may turn up at some point, but I was like, OK, this is a black box. Like I had to really that part of the book, I had to really kind of start from scratch and be like, OK, I know we know that she knows all these people. She had them on the show. Like, how would that look? Um, so a lot of that is really fictionalized. Well, what's 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 really such a, a great reading experience with your book is that it's it's so seamless uh, between the actual historic events that are taking place with your more, I would say, cinematic uh, depiction of the of the environment. The 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 real tension is created, uh, at, you know, as you you paint the scene and um, uh, of her immediate environment, plus what's going on in in uh in in France at the time. Um, and I was I was wondering, as you're doing that, I also noticed that the the chapters all tend to run somewhere between about four and seven pages. And I felt like um, I think everybody's mind, at least mine, has been uh, sort of skewed by the Netflix of the world where I'm going to binge on everything. It, how purposeful is your ending Pretty much every paragraph with, well, I have to read the next paragraph. I can't I can't shut the book right oh, now. Yeah, there's a cliffhanger element to this. <laughs> yeah, I think that. Um, well, I think that that part of it is like, that's my taste. That's how I like to read. I like to read books that kind of leave you on a cliffhanger for the next chapter. And yeah, um, and also, I, I just think that, like you said, uh, books written today have to hold people's attention. You don't have. 20 pages to like get people into the book. You know what I mean? You have to kind of get them into the book in the first five, or they're going to put it down and go watch Netflix. So I think there is a a different element of like making sure you pull that tension through chapter by chapter, scene by scene and and give them a reason 
to, you know, to turn to the next chapter or page. I think that's, I, I'm really cognizant of that um, when I, when I outline. That, oh, that's really interesting because that, that you say that aligns with your preferences as a reader. And I, I was wondering if it was, was that a difficult sort of technique to hone? Yeah, I think, I think that's been, you know, I think that's one of the many challenges of, of writing fiction. Like, you know, you want to try to make it unput downable and it's like, that the alchemy of that is, you know, what, well, what does that take? It's all different elements, you know, and, and, it, and it's, uh, for me, it's a lot of thinking and planning and, and mapping it out. I, I don't, I do know people like Hank Phillippe Ryan is a friend. She writes thrillers and she just sits down every day at the computer and she just writes. And I'm like, Oh, I like, don't even know she, how she does that. So um, I, a bit I'm of a minor miracle. It really is. So I, I am, you know, I really, um, after I've done a good chunk of research, I really map it, map it out from beginning to end. And um, again, chapter by chapter, scene by scene, events in the scene, like all of that. Um, so I think it's less scary to me when I have a plan um, to start diving in. After you're finished with a book, I realize there's a, there's a long time between, you know, it's in your publisher's hands and then it's out in the world. But after you're done with the the actual writing and the revising, et cetera, of a book, how long do the uh, characters remain with you? You know, I, I get that question a lot um, at events and stuff. And um, and like once I'm done I'm done like I I'm like you know it's I mean, probably I'm, healthy <laughs> yeah yeah right I I don't know I don't really I never think about writing sequels I never feel like oh I left this behind you know I, I yeah I, once I'm done with a project I'm done with the project and I'm ready for the next phase to make it as good as it can be before it goes to print so what have you learned about the uh the fiercely devoted readership of historical fiction novels. What is a, any, any particularities about, about the fans of that particular genre that, that you've learned now in the course of these four books? Yeah. So they're very, very smart yeah. and very devoted. If you, you know, if you can get them on your side, you can win them all over. They're very devoted. And, um, they will call you out if you get something wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's I, I would imagine that's the case. And 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 how do you respond to that? Um, Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> well, if it's kind, I will respond. If it's, if it's unkind, I don't respond. Yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a good way to move through. And speaking yeah. of that fiercely devoted um, uh, cadre of readers. You not not only are, do you publish books that um, are right in their sweet spot in terms of what they love. You host a podcast, Historical Happy Hour. Yes, tell me about a, that. How did that come to be, and what's your experience with that, Ben? Yes, well, it's it's a much smaller operation than what you have going here, but it's I, I started it actually during the pandemic because. Um, we were all home and I wanted to try to support. I feel I found the historical author community super supportive of one another. Everyone really tries to lift each other up. So I'm, I came up with this idea um, to help support other authors with new books coming out. So every month. Idea. Yeah. And it was and it started like, oh, I don't know. Can I do this? I don't, but um, but I only do it once a month because and I, I had I could because so many books come out and I get approached by friends with books coming out. I could do it once a week or more, but, um, yeah. but I can't read that fast, frankly. And I like to read a, a, the book before I do the interview. So once yeah. a month I interview a 
a historical fiction author with a new book coming out. And then um, it's a live webinar. So anyone can attend the live webinar. It's usually on a Wednesday or Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And then um, God bless my husband. He converts it into a podcast and a YouTube video. Um, he does all the production and um, in addition to his day job. So Damn, um, I need so a husband yeah. like that. <laughs> right? I know, it's a lot. <laughs> so this month is April 17th, and I'm really excited because I'm kind of a fangirl. I have um, Alka Joshi, and she wrote The Henna Artist. Okay. Which was a, it was a Reese Witherspoon book pick a few years ago, and and now she just finished the third in this trilogy that started with The Henna Artist. It's called um, The Perfumist of Paris, as a matter of fact. And it's she's a beautiful writer. Um, she's all, all her books books take place or at some point take place in India where she's from and she's like a very sensory writer so like the smells and the colors and the tastes and um it's just yeah she's just such a beautiful writer and so I'm super excited to interview her yeah you know I I follow you on social media and and one thing that I'm always super impressed by is how supportive and encouraging uh, you are of other writers and other writers in turn are of you. It's it, it's just a wonderful uh, community of uplift. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I try. I try to be a good literary citizen, as we talk about. And um, and I, I I get so much like joy from, you know, I, I, I did an event last night talking about my book and three people came up and is, were like, oh, I listen to historical happy hour all the time. And I found new books based on that and thank you and i'm like that's just the best because it's i i like i said I, one of the things that has been so uh, amazing is i thought that it would be you know publish a book i thought that the other historical authors i didn't know if it would be competitive or kind of cutthroat but the thing is this industry is competitive and cutthroat by design and so <laughs> authors like support like try to support one another because they know how brutal it is like we all yeah, try to just help each right. other out you know and, and, so. and typically you know if, if you aspire to be an author typically competitive and cutthroats not in your dna it, right, it becomes right. a necessary <laughs> evil it does again it's like publishing is a business it's and a big it's old dirty world pretty hardcore so yeah so the book is Good Night from Paris. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Uh, it is the fourth historical fiction novel that my guest Jane Healy has published. Uh, Jane is in marketing and promotion mode right now for the book as she simultaneously, wink, wink, works on her next uh, her, her next novel. Uh, and she's she was just sharing with me that she's got over 30 events planned, probably in the greater Boston area, but I'm sure reaching beyond those confines. And if you want to find out uh, about, first of all, you got to go out and read the book and then go to an event and meet Jane and have a conversation with her. And we're going to send them to your website, which is janehealy.com. Yeah, it's janehealy.com, H-D-A-L-E-Y. And um, I will say too, I, I do, I Zoom with um, book clubs all over the country. I do virtual book clubs. So any book club that contacts me and wants to do a virtual, like I just drop in and we chat, um, I do that all the time. So um, so just to let listeners know that too. That's fantastic. Well, again, Jane, thanks again for making the time to, to come on and chat with me and congratulations on this book. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you sometime not too far in the distant future about book number five. Well, that is the hope, but thank you. You're such a great interviewer and congratulations on all your success with the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk soon. <laughs>